really struck me as I was watching, I was doing some research, and I was mm. watching um, a video where you're talking about Mart Martag's line of choice, by my will, I make my way. Mm. And I can see that reflected in your own journey from, from an outsider's <laughs> point of view. Is that is that something you would relate to? Uh, yeah, I, I think it's fair to say that's a statement I'd relate to, but Murtag is also a much more um, solitary person than I am. He doesn't have the support structure than I that I do, and so I've been very aware throughout my whole life and my whole career, you know, how fortunate I am to have the support that I have had from friends and family. You know, my editor, my agent, my parents, um, and I wouldn't be where I am now aside from that. Yes, I made certain decisions that kind of started the ball rolling, but the fact that I was able to make those decisions and have the support to make those decisions uh, is due to the environment I was in. This is the Good Bad Mad podcast. I'm your host, Meg Ellis, and I sit down with some of your favorite creators to talk about the creative life. We talk film, theater, literature, fashion, and more. We explore what goes into building a creative career. This episode, I chat with prolific fantasy and sci-fi author Christopher Paolini. He's been on the New York Times bestseller list many times, and he's sold over 41 million copies. My pleasure. His latest book, Murtaugh, is out now. Oh yeah, all good. I've just been recovering from my crazy book tour. I bet, I bet. Was it good fun? Uh, it was, but as with all tours, it's deeply exhausting. Um, but that's kind of a kind of a par for the course. Yes, <laughs> but it's uh, you know it's an ex exhaustion you welcome because you get to meet lots of cool people and thank yeah. the readers and visit interesting places and and all of that. I bet, I bet. Twenty five years, quarter of a yeah. century, as you put it, of yeah. inheritance cycle. That is no small small time. That's a very very large piece of your life in. Allegasia, dragon riders, dragons, multiple languages. Like, do you still have the same passion for it now that you did when you first started? No, but it has changed. It's, it's, mm -hmm. you know, it's been such a part of my life and been such a, um, amazing and intense experience that yeah. my passion has deepened, evolved, uh, you know, it's not that bright flash of youth, youthful enthusiasm that perhaps it it's started matured. as. It's matured. I mean, I have a much deeper yeah. appreciation for um, the power of stories, um, the power it's had to transform my own life as well as other people's. Um, and I think I come to it not... I come to the writing not giddy with excitement most times, although that still that still does happen. Um, but but with like this deep feeling of understanding of the power of the story, even when it's a humorous thing that I'm writing, even when it's light and funny, I'm always I'm always like, yeah, you know, this is this is something that I can create and can perhaps touch people and will exist in the world in a way that I never thought Aragon would exist when I was starting out. So, um, so the passion is there, but it's a different type of passion in a lot of ways. I started working on Aragon, uh, when I was 15, although I had the original idea for it as in, I say original idea, I just the concept of boy finding dragon egg when I was 14. Mm -hmm. And I tried writing a couple of very short versions of Aragon, yeah, when I was 14, and none of them panned out. So I stopped writing for a while, 
I read a bunch of books on how to write because my parents had noticed I had an affinity for this, and these books started magically appearing on the bookcases. <laughs> um, and it did. It became a massive family venture. And then it did. Yeah. Please. Actually, Please. so the book that originally, I mean, I, I read lots of fantasy, but the book that specifically inspired me was a book called Jeremy Thatcher Dragon Hatcher mm -hmm. uh, by Bruce Coville. And it's about a young man in the real world who goes into an antique shop and buys a stone that turns out to be a dragon egg. And I love that idea a lot of a young yeah. man finding a dragon egg. Now, I've actually met Bruce Coville, talked to him about this, and he's He's a lovely gentleman. Uh, the funny thing is, is a couple months ago, uh, my wife was going to our local library and they had a book sale and she found their copy of Jeremy Thatcher Dragon Hatcher, which they were selling and she bought it for me. And this is the actual book that got me to write yeah. Aragon. That's amazing. So the last time this book was checked out was... July 24th, 2014. And then if I go back through the years, it's 1996, July 19th, 1996. That was me. And 1998, I was starting writing on Aragon. So yeah, now I've got this that in my library. such a special gift. And, and how many authors get to say that? Like get to have the actual book, like this is it. This is why I have a career. So I wrote Aragon and then I read the first draft and it wasn't particularly good. So I spent a good chunk of a year rewriting it as best as I could. Um, I didn't know what I was doing, but I was trying. Um, I've heard it said that seeing being displeased with your own work is actually a good thing because it means you know what is good work. And if you're not happy mm -hmm. with your work because it's not good, it means you could at least have a goal to shoot for. If you read your work and you're like, this is the best thing that's ever been written, you're never going to get any better. So mm -hmm. uh, I tried to fix the book as best I could, and then I gave it to my parents and they read it. And fortunately for me, they thought there was something, there was promise there. So they and I decided to self-publish the book as a joint venture, since we didn't know anyone in the publishing world. And that was, again, a good chunk of a year where we were um, editing the book as best the, four, the three of us could, uh, preparing it for publication, formatting. I drew the cover. So reading and literature was always important in our family. Uh, my father's mother was a professor of comparative literature and wrote books on Dante and all sorts of stuff like that. Um, so, you know. So with the, with the, with the myths and, and folklore and all the way back to Homer, was that stuff that was part of your life at this time? Yes. But I should clarify that it wasn't like um, formally introduced to me. It was in mm -hmm. the house. It was in the house. Yeah. Uh, people weren't like wandering around talking about it. It was just like, you know, the Aeneid is sitting on the shelf. <laughs> so, you know, I would go read things. And then um, I, I was exposed to my, uh, I had a great uncle, have a great uncle. He's 90 now, uh, my mother's uncle. Oh, and man. yeah. Um, Guy's still sharp as a tack. It's amazing. Uh, but he gave me a, a set of cassette tapes, a set of cassette tapes of uh, Joseph Campbell, who did Hero of a Thousand Faces. Okay. Uh, so yeah. that was my exposure to his theories of the monomyth and the eternal hero and all sorts of things like that. Uh, and that yeah. got me 
very much interested in and thinking about the origins of the fantasy that I was reading. Because, you know, I was reading Tolkien and David Eddings and Anne McCaffrey and Raymond Feist and Jane Yolen and Andre Norton and Brian Jakes and all of these, you know, authors who were popular at the time. Mm -hmm. And I was very curious of like, well, where does this come from? Tolkien, of course, felt like sort of the origin in a lot of cases. But then I was discovering that, hey, you know, there are earlier stories that even Tolkien was drawing from. Yeah. And that was really, really a revelation to me. Um, and I really sort of got enamored <laughs> with it. A lot of fantasy is um, nostalgic. And that appealed to me because I, because my family, I was homeschooled and my family didn't really have a lot of relatives in the area. So I felt very unmoored from the rest of society. And I think I was looking for a sense of tradition or continuity with the past and fantasy mm -hmm. helped provide that. That's an incredibly articulate thought for a 15 year old author, or is that, has that come with age? No, it was something I was feeling at the time. You were conscious of at the time. Yeah. You were that, looking for... Well, you know, and, and then listening to like the Joseph Campbell stuff, and I was looking like, where are our traditions? Where are our coming-of-age traditions? Where is the great quest to go on to prove yourself as a young adult, as a man? Um, you know, where's the great adventure? What do I do in life? Um, those are all things that are part of the adolescent experience uh, and always have been, which is why so many mythic stories about coming of age deal with those questions. Mm -hmm. And I think it's a universal thing. Um, that's why uh, Harry Potter, Aragon, uh, Twilight, all of these have appealed so much because they deal yeah. with that. They deal with adolescence. They deal with, you know, finding your place in the world as an adult when you're starting as a young adult or a child. Hmm. When you first started out to write The Inheritance Cycle, was it planned A to Z from the beginning? Or was that something that developed? Some things changed over the course of writing the series. You know, it's, it's yeah. inevitable when you're working on a long project for the course of a decade. But all the major beats were planned. Uh, and I can prove that because if you go and reread Aragon... Uh, there's the sequence where Aragon drags his uncle Garrow back to the village of Carvajal. Mm -hmm. And then that night, Aragon has some bad fever dreams. One of those fever dreams describes the very last scene in Inheritance. And I put it in just to show that I had a plan uh, from the very beginning. Yeah. The thing is, is, I can't write without a plan. I'm very bad at um, coming up with a story extemporaneously. I just my brain won't do it. So I need yeah. to have a good roadmap before I put pen to paper. And um, what does that roadmap look like for you? Is it plot beats? Is it character arcs? Is it allegory points? Is it thematic? Is it all of that? Like, what, yeah, what it's, kind it, of... It's all of that uh, because I need all of that. Uh, and some of that mm -hmm. will come while writing and you get to the end of a manuscript and you go back and you reread it and you're like, oh, you know... I have these elements appearing more than I thought I would have appearing and thus they're important or they need to be minimized um, just because you can't always yeah. anticipate how things will strike the reader. But I try to have everything in place. I try to know who the characters are, where they're going, what the point of their journey is emotionally and for their own issues. Uh, try to have the big pieces of the world itself, the setting itself in place. And then 
try to have some idea of what every single scene uh, is doing for the story, which is hard. Mm -hmm. That that getting that granular is hard before you actually write the story. But it, it, the more I do it, the better. The it's it's a massive task. Yeah, it <laughs> is, but it saves you work in the long run. If if I don't yeah. do it, then the work ends up having to be done in revision, and it's a lot harder to revise something that already exists versus getting it right the first time. Do you like surprising yourself as as you write? Yes. Like if you're such a planner, those little surprises you you quite enjoy them. Well, usually the surprises come out in the behavior of the characters, just moment mm. to moment versus like any some big story beat, because usually the story fits together well enough that there isn't going to be some massive change with that unless I run into a problem where I'm like, you know, wait a minute, this really doesn't make sense. And then I have to reevaluate. But in general, mm. uh, that doesn't happen. Uh, so an actual outline for me would be like a 10 page document or so where I have a paragraph for each essentially each scene throughout the book yeah. uh, describing what happens. And in the past, when I was younger, I used to be very much like um, just describing the physical events because a lot of times I know what they mean. But as yeah. I've gotten older, I take, uh, I take the effort now to usually not just say what's happening and why it's happening, but what it actually means to the characters. So, yeah, you know, as, as an ex outside. as an example, if I had a paragraph and said, you know, uh, Murtag or Aragon uh, get into a fight with Urgles and flee the city. Okay, whatever. That's that's the event. But if it's then framed as he gets into a fight with Urgles and is frightened out of his mind and has to use magic in order to survive, which reveals his identity to the villagers or the townspeople, and this causes him to have a panic attack. I'm just pulling stuff out of thin air, you know, but then it means a lot more. Then you understand what it's doing in the story as an example. Yeah. So just whatever tools I need to, to understand what I'm doing, because if I know what I'm trying to accomplish when I sit down to write, the writing goes really fast for me. So doing all the yeah. prep work is is worth worth the effort. <laughs> are you the kind of um writer who edits themselves as they go or do you write leave it and then return to it later i i've been both types of writers uh when i started working on eldest i was very i had been through a lot of editing with aragon where i was just trying to mm. you know bring my prose up to a professional level try to understand what i was doing so when I started working on Eldest, I was going into that having had a long period of editing, and I was editing as I was writing. And I was doing that all the way into Brissinger to a good chunk. Um, and it was it made the writing very slow and rather miserable, which is why uh, actually there was as, as long as there was between the books, that and the touring. But these days I don't do that. Uh, because I have learned that that's a sign of insecurity and it's a sign. I mean, it's just, you're, you're anxious, you know, you're over, you're anxious about your prose and how people are going to react to it. So what I've learned to do is say, there's plenty of time to address this in editing, focus on maintaining momentum while writing the story, because I found I can sprint for about two weeks with the writing and I can maintain a good mm -hmm. pace for about three months. And after that, I really hit a wall. It's like mentally, physically, I need a real break after about three months of, you know, really pushing on a project. 
so with Murtag, I finished Murtag in three and a half months in the first draft, and I was not, you know, overanalyzing every single sentence. Um, that occurred during the editing. Something that I only learned with experience, and maybe this will be of some help to other authors, is that or aspiring writers, is that one of the reasons I really stopped doing that edit as I go too much, too much, is that I realized after a lot of these <laughs> number of these books is that you don't necessarily understand the importance of each sentence until you have the rest of the book and you have the context yeah. and you can see the pacing of everything in context. You might be spending a lot of time polishing a sentence that's just going to get cut anyway, or a paragraph or a scene. Mm. So you might as well get the first draft so you can look at it as a whole. And then you can say, you know what, this entire chapter needs to be cut out or this entire chapter needs to be half the size or it needs to be twice the size. And then you can yeah. really focus on the line by line. The thought popped into my head there in, in regards to publishing. So the, the first book you self published, hmm. at what point, I guess, go through more traditional means of publishing? So I was going, uh, my family and I were going around the Western half of the United States with the self-published edition of Aragon. I was cold calling mm -hmm. schools, libraries, and bookstores to set up events. And I was doing two to three one hour long presentations every single day for months on end at various times. You have to understand that because my parents were self-employed, the time they took to help prepare Mert Aragon for publication was time they weren't working on other freelance projects that would have been bringing in money. So by the time we actually had Aragon printed and in hand, if it had taken another two to three months to start turning a profit, we were going to have to sell our house, move to a city and get any jobs we could. So it was an incredible chance that they took. Yeah. I mean, in retrospect, I've really like gone, wow, I, I can't believe how lucky I was and how lucky we all were. Mm -hmm. So we were doing that, and because of that financial pressure, which they didn't put on me, you know, we we all decided together to self-publish the book. Uh, but because of that pressure, I was willing to do things I probably would have been too uncomfortable to do otherwise, like doing all those presentations. The yeah. book sold enough copies and bounced around enough that we'd heard that Scholastic, because Scholastic does all the book fairs in schools in the U.S., uh, was interested in you know, that we might get an offer from them. Before that happened, though, uh, another author, uh, Carl Hyacin, who's written Hoot and a bunch of other adult and children's books, uh, he was vacationing in Montana, and he bought a copy of Aragon for his then 12-year-old son, Ryan. And Ryan liked the book enough that um, he told his dad, and his dad passed it off to Random House and sort of bounced around the editors for a couple of months before my editor-to-be picked it up and decided to go for it. And then I got an email from her uh, saying, you know, Random House was interested in acquiring the series, which, you know, kind of changed everything for both me and my family. And we, and we knew we didn't know what we didn't know at that point, yeah. if that makes sense. So, so you were very much looking for that, that partnership. Well, we were wary, but the thing is, is we were selling yeah. enough books of Ar copies of Aragon that to scale it up, we were going to have to start duplicating all the things that a regular publisher does. You know, we were actually looking at partnering with a book packager or a book distributor just to get more copies out. And, yeah. you know, 
to do everything a traditional publisher could could do for me was a huge amount of work. So it, it made sense to pair with Random House or someone else at that point. Um, mm -hmm. But it was still nerve wracking because the book was being a success and then handing it off to another company, you know, and we didn't know if it was just going to end up in the remainder bin two weeks after it came out. And just tying that back to what you were saying earlier about editing or that kind of quick editing being a, a version of anxiety, was that something you felt moving to this like um, deal with Random House? Was that yes. quite pressure? I mean, it was it was a big change to go from writing for yourself as a teenager, homeschooled, living in the middle of nowhere, to knowing that there was a large audience for your next book and that they had expectations. And, and you know, I got criticized quite a bit, critiqued quite a bit when Aragon came out for, um, shall we say, my lack of experience on the technical side of things mm -hmm. with the writing. And, you know... I'd say some of those were certainly fair critiques. Uh, the great advantage of youth is that you don't know how difficult things are and you have a lot of energy. Yeah. The great disadvantage of youth is you don't have experience. And there's there's no fixing that aside from time and effort. So yeah. all of that was definitely in my head when I really started work on Eldest. And it was yeah. pretty nerve-wracking, quite honestly. Some of the things that have helped me over the long run is, I mean, A, I'm fortunate enough that I do have an audience. So it's like, I write something these days, I know people are mm -hmm. going to read it. And yeah. um, that definitely lowers the anxiety quite a bit. Um, but the other things that help are uh, practical considerations. One, this is how yeah. I make, my, this is how I make my living. So uh, books sold means food on the table, and that's a good motivator for writing. Um aside from the fact that I love stories and I love, I mean, I don't want to, people to misunderstand that this is no, just about no, commercialism. No, but, um, but it doesn't hurt to have that motivation. Uh, to, it certainly doesn't. And it is, some, sorry to interrupt, but it is something which a lot of people forget about in co considering creative careers. Like yeah. putting food on the table is a massive consideration. It is. And it's, um, especially as an author, where if, if you've got 10 years between books, I can't imagine that pressure. <laughs> there, there, yeah, there's a couple stories there. Um, two, I have a lot of stories I want to tell, a lot of books I want to write, and each one takes X amount of time, and I'm only going to live so long. Um, you know, they call it a deadline for a reason. So I try not to get too hung up on any one story because I want to tell these, write these other books. Um, and lastly, is just trying to enjoy the process too. You know, that's not yeah. worrying too much about what other people are going to think, you know, and not every story is for every reader and that's okay. Do you feel ownership of these, of these characters still, and specifically the inheritance cycle, because that's been with people for so many years, but, or do you think they own, they belong to the people now? No, they're mine because I can do what I want yeah. with them. Yeah. But, but they have their own existence in the minds of the readers. You know, I have mm -hmm. a personal relationship with the books I read and the characters in those books. Um, I can't uh, you know, I'll just pick a book at random, you know, Dune, for example. Mm -hmm. My emotions and interactions with that book are probably very different than someone else's and different from Frank Herbert's when he wrote it. So uh, I know people have very deep emotional feeling uh, deep emotional connections and uh, experiences with Aragon and Safira and the other characters. And that's out of my control. So 
but it does make me want to do justice to. Hmm. Like uh, it is a wonderful thing at the end of the day that someone loves something that you've created so much. I, I mean, absolutely. That's I mean, that's the goal. That's the dream. That's what you yeah. hope as a creator. But it makes me feel a sense of responsibility writing a news story. Uh, I definitely yeah. felt this with Murtag of wanting to do justice to those, you know, feelings that people have toward the characters. Did you have the idea for the Murtag novel back when you finished Inheritance, like the official Inheritance cycle? No, no. I had a different idea that I still want to write that I was always calling mm -hmm. book five or so. So between the end of Inheritance and, let's say, 2018, I had written a story set in the world of Aragon called The Worm of Calcaris, but it was sort of a standalone story and yeah. it wasn't long enough to publish on its own. In 2018, uh, I wrote a couple other stories. Um, my sister contributed as well, and that got pulled together as The Fork, the Witch, and the Worm, Tales from Alagazia, mm -hmm. Volume 1, which, by the way, I need to write Volume 2. And one of those, of course, the fork story was centered around Murtag, and that got me thinking about him as a character a lot more and about what could be happening in his life and where that might be going. When I started looking at writing the next book in the world of Aragon, I was looking at book five and I was doing the groundwork for it. And then I realized because it's further down the timeline than Murtag, that I was having to do a huge amount of explaining and sort of you know, setting the setting the groundwork um, for people to understand how we got to the point of where we were in that book. And then I thought, well, you know, maybe it'd be a good idea to take a step back and tell one of these earlier stories so people understand what's going on. And then, of course, I was thinking about Murtag. And since 2023 was the 20th year anniversary of Random House's hardcover edition of Aragon, that also mm -hmm. felt like a nice goal to shoot for, that, you know, Aragon came out in 2003, Murtag comes out 2023. Mm -hmm. 2023. So I, I like the symbolism. So there is more to come in, in the Aragon universe. Oh, wow. huge, huge amounts. I just have to write it. It's true, but I mean, you put 25 years into it. You can't stop now. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, the thing is, it doesn't matter what else I write in my life. When I die on my on my tombstone, it's going to say, here lies the, the author of Aragon. So it's incredibly gratifying, but it is kind of weird that the thing you're most famous for is something you started when you were 15. I bet. Like, how do you look back on your 15-year-old self now? Do you look back impressed? Do you look back, like, in all going, what were you thinking? <laughs> Work could be better, but I don't criticize it because I did the best I could at the time and expecting anything else would be unrealistic. Yeah. Um, mo mo mostly I just look back and wish I could tell myself that it was going to be okay. You know, mm -hmm. that things were going to work out. And, and, you know, I'd give myself some, some other more specific life advice if I could talk to myself that would probably save me a little bit of grief here and there. Um, mm -hmm. I mean, I have this fantasy. Actually, I actually have a story about this. Um, I have this fantasy of being able to send my younger self the manuscripts of my books and kind of like get a jump ahead of time and energy. It's like, okay, here, here are the next four books or mm -hmm. five books or here are all the books I've written to date here. You have them at 16 or 20 or whatever. Um, mm. Now you can build from this um, and you can release them all fast and people are going to think you're, you're insanely creative and awesome. Um, yeah. 
I don't know. Uh, I just wish there was some way to take what I've learned now and shunt it back 20 years. But of course, that's, I mean, that's not how that's reality life. works. Yeah. <laughs> that's just life. What's, what's, the, what's the old saying? Youth is wasted on the young. Yeah, something like that. And storytelling right. has always been a way of conveying lessons. Yeah. And um, I guess one of the questions I had for you is, what do you want to like leave with your readers? Mm, well, <laughs> I think there are a lot of potential answers for that. But ultimately, for mm. me, I hope that... I mean, look, when I read a great story or watch a great, a great movie, at least what I pers personally consider great, it affects me emotionally. You know, I get a, I get the yeah. pervert, I get the, I get the tingle up the spine. Uh, I get this flush of emotion. I get a sense of awe and wonder. Mm -hmm. And I'm always trying to evoke that in my readers, something, something that sticks with them emotionally. Yeah. Uh, ideas are not that hard to convey. Or at least mm -hmm. they're a lot easier to convey than anything else. Information is not that hard to convey. Mm -hmm. But successfully evoking the desired emotion in your audience, whether you are a painter, a singer, a writer, a filmmaker, that's what's hard. And it's hard because everyone's wired differently. And everyone has different ways of processing the, the input they're getting. You know, if I say a certain word to you, if I say the word rock, you're going to see a different rock in your head. You're going to have different memories associated with it. You might be seeing a pebble. You might see be seeing a yeah. you know baseball-sized rock. You might be seeing a boulder. You might be seeing Dwayne the Rock Johnson in your head. Um, I'm not going to lie. That did come to my head. I had that feeling when you... <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. And, and that's why writing is so subjective. You know, we can read the same... Two different people can read the same page, and each word is going to strike them differently. So with all of that being said, ultimately, I would hope that... Um, you know, that the stories linger in people's minds and gives them some of those emotions I was talking about, uh, because that's why I love, I love stories. Having had your books part of my life and my brother's life for many, many years, I can successfully say you've done that. Thank <laughs> I you. have this amazing photo of my brother aged 10. He's 29 now. Mm. Um, and he's dressed up for world book day in a homemade brom costume with oh, wow. um black marker pen all over his cheek is like stubble <laughs> <laughs> and it's one of my favorite photos of him because he's he's not a reader at all he's, he's mm -hmm. never been a reader um and yet those books connected with him in, mm. in such a way so if that little story alone <laughs> but i'm sure you hear them all the time, especially at your readings and, and your your appearances. It must be lovely and, I guess, overwhelming to connect with your fans. That's a, that's a good way of putting it. Lovely and overwhelming. Because, again, everyone has their yeah. own personal history with these books. And, I mean, I, I have people showing up who've named their children after the characters or who've gotten tattoos. Oh, my goodness. What's the one you get? Uh, I mean multiple Sephiras, Arias, Rorins, a couple of Aragons. So as a writer, you want people to read your stories, enjoy them, be affected by them. If they're affected so strongly, they name their children after <laughs> your characters. Uh, you know, yeah, you, you feel pretty good about it. But if I heard correctly, um, as I was reading, Aragon wasn't originally called Aragon. No, in the first draft of the book, he was called Kevin. I mean... 
There's a reason. <laughs> Look, I have an explanation for it. Okay. The explanation is that. Um, I mean, to be fair, you were 15. <laughs> Well, but my original inspiration was Jeremy Thatcher Dragon Hatcher, which is set in the real world. So the original mm-hmm. version of Aragon that I was developing was set in the real world. Okay. And when I when I decided that it would make more sense to have a world where the dragons were native to and switched it over yeah. to this fantasy world and began to develop that, uh, I just kept the name that I'd been working with, which was Kevin. And, I, you know, naming a main character is hard especially when you get used to a certain name. And so I just, I don't want to say I was lazy. I was like, okay, I want to focus on the world building and writing the first draft and I'll worry about the name later. Mm. So you cut your teeth in, in fantasy, really. Mm. Um, and now, I say now, for the last kind of decade, you've kind of explored sci-fi. Well, I mean, science fiction can be as um, realistic or not, depending on what you want to do. Mm. In my case, I wanted to create a setting that I could write a lot of stories in over the years. Mm -hmm. And that would also include the real world. And that meant that I had to take physics as we know it into account. Um, At least I wanted to, I didn't want to just throw it all out out the window. Uh, and, And part of my reasoning for that is I really enjoyed sort of thinking about the future that I hope humans are going to have out among the stars and part of mm-hmm. what i find interesting with that is the practicality of it. it's like how could it actually be done what are the technologies what are the things that would enable us to do that which i find yeah. quite interesting so i did a lot of research on that um the biggest stumbling block which i've talked about a f- number of times was uh trying to come up with a means of faster than light travel which mm-hmm. is the magic tech in my world and I wanted that just because otherwise the travel times um, are just yeah. impossible. I mean, you, you can you can write a hard sci-fi story without faster than light travel. I mean, you could have, you know, an entire empire and empires in the solar system, for example. There's plenty of space to do that. And that was my original um, idea. But ultimately, I wanted a bigger canvas to play on. So trying to come up with an FTL technology that hadn't been used by some other sci-fi franchise that didn't contradict physics as we know it and did not allow for time travel, which Einstein says, if you travel faster than light, you automatically have a time machine. And most sci-fi franchises just ignore that. Uh, That was extraordinarily difficult. Uh, I ended up finding a guy who works with, um, I think it's the Jet Propulsion Lab or something. He works with NASA developing nuclear propulsion, uh, Gregory Mahalik. And he and a couple other guys have this theory they call it, that Greg calls the tri-space theory. And to be mm-hmm. fair, there's, there's to be clear, there's no proof that this is the way reality actually is, but yeah. it's a unique theory that, or hyp- hypothesis that uh, hadn't been used anywhere else and gave me exactly what I needed and makes, you know, makes sense. Uh, and so that ended up forming the basis for my FTL technology and you know, communications technology and all sorts. It it provided a lot of foundational information for my setting. So uh, that was a a big challenge. And in general, writing science fiction, I find the constraints of it are a little bit harder just because Mm -hmm. uh, if you're being realistic, uh, spaceships and technology don't have as much wiggle room as living things. If you need to go from point A to point B a little faster in the world of Aragon, you can say, well, you know, they spurred the horses on a little faster uh, or they ran on foot because they're heroes and they can push themselves to extraordinary lengths. But with interstellar distances, okay, you you beat on the, the ship engine with a wrench and now it's going 
a little bit faster. It, it like it doesn't matter over the course of going from one star to the next. The you'd have to have like a magnitude yeah. improvement for it to make any difference. So uh, the travel times really imposed some certain limitations on the story, but that that was fun. Um, I think what I liked the most was getting to use a modern vocabulary and break the hab the linguistic yeah. habits I'd established over over ten years working on the inheritance cycle. I, I did not always succeed with the inheritance cycle because I learned as I went along, but there's a lot of words that I did mm -hmm. not and would not use in the books because they were out of place. Um, in fact, it's funny. I have a friend of mine who's Italian, a uh, fellow author, and she read To Sleep in a Sea of Stars in English, which was the first book of mm -hmm. mine she'd read in English. And she's also been reading now Murtag in English, I believe. And she's having more difficulty with Murtag than to sleep in a sea of stars. And I was curious because there's a lot of technical mm. terminology in to sleep in a sea of stars. And I, so I asked her yeah. about this and she said, it's, and we, I managed, we kind of burrowed down and figured out what the issue was, which is that <clears throat> technical words in English tend, a lot of times tend to be of Latin origin, Latin or Greek. And yeah. for an Italian reader and speaker, that's easy to understand. Whereas in Murtag, uh, the vocabulary is much more Germanic and Anglo-Saxon. And as a result, yeah. much more difficult for a, a native speaker of a romance language. Amazing that you can delve into it like that. Speaking I mean, I got nothing else. To, I got nothing else to do. I just sit and think about this stuff. Did you ever drive yourself insane with it? Mm -hmm. Oh yes. <laughs> during during the pandemic, I was incredibly productive, and I, I was calling up my agent mm -hmm. and. I said, yeah, you know, I've been getting lots of work done. He said, oh, yeah. He says, the authors are doing great, but that's because you guys are already crazy. <laughs> 100%. You're used to this environment mm -hmm. where you've just got to live with your own brain. Oh, yes. That's that's the challenge, <laughs> isn't it? I love it. But it, just circling back to the, the language thing. So the, the languages that you were playing around with in the inheritance cycle... I mean, you've got multiple languages that you yeah. kind of formulated there. Like, so they were Germanic, Anglo-Saxon based. The ancient language, the mm -hmm. magical language is based uh, very strongly on Old Norse, which of course is Germanic um, mm -hmm. or related to Old High German. And uh, the Dwarven language was invented pretty much from scratch, although it is an agglutinate language like German is. Mm. Uh, and then the other languages have not appeared very much in the series. Uh, they're just little yeah. scraps here and there. Uh, and, and to be clear, I am not a linguist and I have not devoted the time and energy to developing these in a formal or rigorous way, the way that Tolkien did. Cause you know, Tolkien was a linguist and that was his forte. Mm. I, I got far enough down that path, uh, while working on the inheritance cycle that I really began to appreciate I really began to appreciate how every word has a history and that history is inexorably tied to the history of the land. And, you know, the old, yeah. I mean, it's often said that, you know, Tolkien created middle earth just to explain his languages as a setting for the languages, which isn't entirely true, but there's a, there is truth to that. And, 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 you know, that's what I was encountering. And I was realizing that I could spend 20 years, 10 years, just working on the languages and building this out. And, you know, it might have been a worthwhile venture, but the trade-off would have been no more books published during that time. Yeah, you want to tell a story, not. A I want to tell. I want to tell a story. That's correct. I mean, would you say you're quite an ambitious person? Yes. 
<laughs> yes. I mean, you have to have that some ambition. If you, if you don't if you don't try for the big stuff, you're not going to I mean, even if you fail, at least you've accomplished something and you might you might accomplish something smaller than you originally intended, but you have to try for the big things. I mean, I completely agree. I'm I'm very much a no risk no story kind of person. Mm-hmm. But um I'm I'm imagining you at your, at your 14, 15 year old self programming this entire world <laughs> and um, its languages and its histories and even in a certain degree of like naivety that is ambitious very ambitious and we've kind of touched a bit on your history of, of reading yourself and kind of studying storytelling was mm. would you say that was quite a immersive experience or did you very much like sit down and, and study structure and, and character development and, and et cetera, et cetera? I did. Uh, I mean, again, it, it okay. wasn't like a, it wasn't a formal course or anything. It's just that these books, mm-hmm. my parents started buying these books and they started showing up. Yeah. Uh, in fact, I still have them here on my shelf. This, this bookcase to my right is full of research books, technical books, um, language books. Uh, so I read a book called Story by Robert McKee, which is a screenwriting book. Yeah. Uh, that was and often has been very popular in Hollywood. And it was it's, it's a mm-hmm. fairly technical look at story structure. Now, I would never say do everything he says, because of course, you shouldn't fo- necessarily follow any one formula. But that book mm-hmm. really got me thinking about the fact that stories do have structure which I hadn't really thought about before that, and that one can control that structure and that this gives you something to work with. And with Aragon, I, okay. So before Aragon, I tried writing a number of stories and I never got past the first four four to six pages, 10 pages, because I never had the plot. All I would ever have was the inciting incident, which, you know, in the case of Aragon is a young man finds a dragon egg, which, okay, fine, but that's not a story. So, When I read that book, then I was like, wow, you know, so there, I can control the structure of this. Um, so I, before writing Aragon, I, again, I, I was very methodical, even as a teenager, I created an entire fantasy world, wrote pages and pages about the world building, and then I plotted out an entire story in that world, just to prove to myself that I could plot a story, create a world, and then I didn't write it. I put it aside. I still have it all saved. I put it in a shelf, put it in a drawer. And then I decided, okay, now I'm going to plot out a trilogy because all great fantasy stories are trilogies. I'm going to do it as the heroic monomyth because that is, at least my understanding back then, is this is one of the oldest forms of stories. I know it works on a general sense. It's going to give me a safety net. And then I'm going to write the first book as a practice book just to see if I'm capable of producing something that's three, four, five hundred pages long. Uh, and that's what I did. That was about two and a half months of world building, plotting, creating this, creating this. And then I wrote the first book and that was Aragon. That was my practice book. I never actually planned on publishing Aragon. It was only after uh, I'd put so much work into it and my parents read it that then we proceeded with it. Um, so yes, I was aware of story structure. I continue to read lots of books on it. Um, leads me into my next question quite nicely. Um, it's it's been announced that you're doing a Aragon series mm. with Disney Plus. Yeah, and you're writing on it. You're co-writing. Is that right? 
That's the plan. That's the plan. So it's very interesting that one of the first storytelling books that comes to mind is the Robert McKee one. That yeah, I mean, I mean, I've always been fascinated with film, and I would love to make film at some point. Uh, I might actually yeah. make a real effort in that direction this year. We shall see. So, because the thing is, we didn't have television reception growing up, but we would rent movies yeah. and we would watch a film every evening with dinner. And we did that for years and years and years and years. I have seen a lot of movies. Uh, so, me too, don't worry. <laughs> so to me, and, 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 and films, if you read scripts, scripts are almost entirely structure and outline. You know, they're, 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 a, they're yeah. a plan, a guideline for, for the story that is to be made into a film. Um, so yes. The, so so it, it, it does make a natural sense. If, if that's your style of writing, that you, you, you would also um, adapt it. Yeah. So we're, we're waiting for Disney to greenlight it, are we? Well, we, what we're looking, what we're waiting for is um, some key personnel to get into place. Uh, and until we find those, mm. well, specifically, we need the showrunner. Um, we had a yeah. number of people interested and we were talking with people and there was one person in particular that I thought was going to be a good fit. Uh, and then the writer's strike happened. So uh, now yeah. we're... It now we're a lot of... Yeah, we're, we're having to restart the process. Uh, and the thing is, it's a, it's a very short list of people who can take that position. Uh, for those who don't know, yes. showrunners oversee an entire show. They may or may not direct any episodes, mm -hmm. but they usually you know oversee the production and the writing. They often write many of the episodes, um, or at least help. They're, they're an advocate for yes. the story. Yes. And so, you know, the list of, of people who can do that is A, small. There's only so many people who yeah. have the experience to run a big budget television show. Uh, B, it needs to be someone who likes the material and actually wants mm -hmm. to adapt it in a way that is faithful to it. And C, gets along with me and I get along with them since we have to work together. Oh, uh, so yeah, that's, that's what we need to find. For all, for all the jokes about the film, uh, and I've said my share of them, it's not the worst film in the world. The problem is the pr the problem is, is it's not a particularly good adaptation of Aragon, and that's where the disconnect yeah. happens. Um, the The budget yeah. on the film was actually ridiculously bigger than most than you would think watching the film. They spent a lot yeah, of money on the huge. movie. It was huge, um, but mm -hmm. behind the scenes, it was a very difficult process with a lot of upheaval behind the scenes. Yeah. Uh, it was the largest budget that that sub studio of Fox had ever worked with before. Um, the biggest budget they'd worked mm -hmm. with before that was Castaway, which I think was 80 million at the time. And most of that was, yeah. you know, Robert Zemeckis and uh, Tom, Tom Hanks's salaries. Yeah. So it was something outside their wheelhouse. They didn't, and there was no one involved in the project who really loved the material and perhaps yeah. it's unfair to have expected that because Aragon was so new you know there wasn't the fan base that had grown up the way there is now people mm. didn't know where the story was going and the lore of Allegasia did not exist to the yeah. degree it does now so but still no no one was ultimately in charge of the project who really liked the yeah. book um on a deep level and I think that shows yeah. on the final product not enough to 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 put you off trying again which i think is very very admirable well i mean what's the alternative you could just give up um you have yeah. to try you know you have to try writing a book even if it doesn't work you have to try making an adaptation even if it doesn't work that's life you know you fall flat on your face you was get up it... you do it again <laughs> that's true was it always something that you wanted to see of course i i originally adaptation? envisioned 
I originally envisioned Aragon as a movie, but there was no yeah. possible way to get that made as a kid, so I wrote it. Yeah, but um, with TV, like especially nowadays, you've got so much room to explore and actually explore the universe that you've created. Yes. But yes. at the same time, you're going to have to praise your own work. <laughs> well, it's, um, you know, the difficult thing with adapting a book is that books can show you very easily what's going on inside someone's head uh, and mm -hmm. film and television are all external. And so yes. even if I were hundred percent in charge of an adaptation and I had all the money in the world and all the time in the world, and I could make it exactly the way I want to make it, there is no way to make it exactly the way it is in the book because you just yeah. can't. And then on well, top of that, mediums. there were different medias. And on, and on top of that, then the way I envision and see the characters in the world is probably different from how a lot of character, how a lot of readers yeah. envision and see it. And that's that's something also that people don't always think about when they say, "Oh, I wish the creator was in charge of the project." It was like, well, it's like when I first met Terry Brooks. You know, he's the author mm. of the sort of um, sort of Shannara, um, yeah. except he says it Shannara, which is his right. And I totally respect that he wants to say it the sort of Shannara. But it's Shannara. not in your head. It's, it's not. No, it's the sort of Shannara. No. no. I, I completely agree. But it's like I've had it where authors have specifically described characters one way and I've seen them completely different, like yeah. despite very specific um, descriptions. And you're like, no, I just don't see that person that way. And like you say, everyone brings their own experiences, their own baggage, their own anything to these these things and that's kind of the wonderful thing mm -hmm. about stories well no i have a overarching plan for both the fractal verse which is my science fiction setting and the world yeah. of aragon and ideally i would just alternate mm -hmm. between the two of them but murtag mm -hmm. has um done rather extraordinarily well since it <laughs> came out yeah uh, you know there there's there's definitely some motivation to uh push forward <laughs> yeah yeah um so we'll see but but when when I mean like you say you're you're a planner, um, do you 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 have an idea you have a spark of thought do you jot it down yes and leave it yes or do you immediately delve into the whole? Thing? I mean it it depends on the idea ultimately and it depends yeah. how much of it I have but I always write something down because I have forgotten story ideas in the past which sucks. Oh. So um, the instant I have something that I think is interesting, I write it down. I mean, I won't write mm -hmm. most of these because I don't have the time, but I write them all down. Yeah. I mean, if I take my, I have a folder here, file, excuse me, a file mm -hmm. with story ideas. Let me, let me see how big it is. Uh, yeah, it's 140 pages of story ideas. Oh my goodness. 19,147 is... 19, words. Yeah, that would be a... Uh... A lot more than one lifetime's work, but you never know. Your children might follow in your footsteps. Um, but yeah, so I, I try to write down if I have a sense of more of the story than the initial yeah. thing, then I'll write that down. But then mostly I just let it sit and I think about it while I'm working mm -hmm. on other stories. I like to do the thing at um, to kind of summarize um, your creative experience as an author or musician or whoever I'm speaking to, and we sum it up as the good, bad, and mad um, elements which kind of pull together a creative life. Mm. Um, so let's start with the good. What, what's, what's the best thing that you take from doing what you do? Like what, 
keeps you going back to it every single time you have a block or an issue. The magic of telling stories, getting those mm-hmm. amazing feelings from character interactions and events in a story, the beauty of language itself. Uh, and of course, uh, the joy of having your books read and knowing that people actually like them um, and respond mm-hmm. to them. Uh, and as I mentioned earlier, putting food on the table, um, being able to do all of those things is all positive, all good. Those are the good things. The, the bad. <laughs> bad bit about what you do. Um, the bad bit would be deadlines. Uh, those can be stressful. Mm-hmm. The bad bit would be the vast amount of time that is required to create even a small book. Um, large amounts of time mm-hmm. spent sitting alone, which can wear on you. Uh, the bad can be getting criticized, critiqued for your work fairly or unfairly. It's just, it's never fun. Um, mm-hmm. But, you know, those are fairly minor bad things in the scheme of it, scheme of everything. Yeah. It balances out for me. It does balance out. Yes. If, if the negative outweighed the positive, I wouldn't still be doing this 20 years later. Yeah. What would you do? What, what would you do in another life? <clears throat> Possibly art. Uh, I've done yeah. all the interior art for my last two novels, Murtag and Fractal Noise. Uh, and I've always done the interior art for oh, the inheritance okay. cycle. Um, it's something I seriously considered as a profession when I was younger. Uh, if not that, then something in science, probably theoretical physics. Um, I really, really enjoy that. Um, I, math is hard for me, but I really enjoy solving problems and I love, um, trying to figure out re- the reality that we're, that we're in. Perfect ingredients for a science fiction writer. <laughs> well, that's the thing. I get to have the... Um, joy of being right in my own universe with whatever whatever ideas I come up with without having to struggle with grants and pesky technology and all of that. And the mad. The mad is this the mad is this entire journey. The mad is the fact that a book I wrote at 15, 16 ended up debuting on the New York Times list. That it sold a million copies in the first six months. That it's still being read to this day and is popular that you know i wrote a sequel 20 years later and it's still number one on the new york times list now that that the people care that i have been walking in front of crowds since i was a teenager and doing presentations that there was a friggin film made um the the list goes on and on it has been an insane experience uh one i'm very grateful for but it's been a very strange very strange life Um, and it it just it just brings me back to it it does strike me that your your parents played such a large role in your journey Um, Uh, it's the the luckiest thing that ever happened to me was me having the parents that I had thank you to your parents (laughs) for (laughs) supporting you at the very beginning and um, I'll say thank you on behalf of myself and my brother because we have loved your books well and and I and I will say thank you to you and everyone else who's read the books. Um, you know, it means the world to me, and it's a large part of why I write these stories. And I have every plan, every intention of writing as many as I possibly can. Thank you for listening. Hit that subscribe button if you want more Good, Bad, Mad. See you next time.